I think the best skill is someone that's going to be inquisitive in the fact that you're not just going to go to that first or second step, but you're going to look beyond that. You just can't always take an answer up front or face value. You need to look behind these answers and determine whether it's factually correct or not. You're listening to Kevin Green, a former special agent with the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigations and currently the managing partner of Eagle Intel Services. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Common sense worldly approach is probably one of the things I see most investigators that are successful have. In this episode, we discuss using technical equipment to gather evidence in an investigation, how an investigation shut down the trading between the Federal Reserve and Switzerland, the value of a mentor in investigations, and the most valuable skills needed to be a successful investigator. He's a former special agent with Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigation. He is currently the managing partner of Eagle Intel Services, a private investigation firm. Kevin Green, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on board today. Before you became a private investigator, you spent how many years with the IRS? Uh, I was with the IRS for 29 years. Uh, I began my career in uh, actually 1988 in the exam support and processing section of IRS. And how did you transition from the auditing side to becoming a special agent? Well, it was something that I always wanted to do, and that's the reason I went with the IRS. I had an uncle who was a special agent out of Charlotte, North Carolina. He was, uh, I was always interested in what he did, and he's the one that actually was able to get with the IRS. So I interviewed with the, at that time, they used to call him the chief. Now they call him the SAC, special agent in charge, but it was the chief, and he was stationed in Greensboro, North Carolina. So he got me the interview. I, I went up to talk to the chief. They weren't hiring any special agents. They weren't hiring any revenue agents or revenue officers at the time. But he told me, he said, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to school. I'd already had a um, business administration degree from UNC Charlotte, but he wanted more accounting. He was one of these guys that really was interested in uh, more accounting. He was a CPA. So he said, I want you to go enroll at UNC Greensboro and enroll and just take accounting courses the entire time you're there. I want you to go down and talk to our personnel director, see what positions are out there available for IRS and see if he'll hire you. And then come back to me and talk. So I, I went down and talked to uh, the gentleman. He said, well, we've got a position called a batch clerk and mail clerk position in exam support processing. It's an entry-level position. Would you be interested? Well, the chief had already told me, get my foot in the door, learn about IRS, and that'll be a little easier to get me on board in criminal investigation. To make a long story sh- short, I took the job. Uh, waited it out for a little over two years, and then finally uh, was offered a job as actually a tax fraud investigative aide in Raleigh, which I basically had that job for about three or four months before being picked up as a special agent. That was in early 1991. What kind of investigations did you conduct as an IRS special agent? Well, that's the good thing about it, being an IRS special agent. Uh, you're, you're exposed to various investigations, a very diverse investigative group. 
tax fraud, of course, that being the primary bread and butter of the IRS criminal investigation. False claims, basically those people making up uh, false returns to get refunds. All types of money laundering cases. One of the first cases I had, agent, was illegal lotteries and wagering. That was a big thing in eastern North Carolina. Work Ponzi scheme investigations, public corruption, contraband cigarette trafficking. And probably the last 10 years of my career, I was liaison with the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Forces out of Raleigh, Greensboro, Fayetteville, and Wilmington. So looking into terrorist financing and any type of financial crimes that may support uh, that movement. During your time as a special agent, did you have any other duties that you performed, such like undercover agent? Being with the IRS, they always expect more of you. And yes, sir, I did. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be what they called a tech agent, actually an electronic tech agent. Basically, is responsible for gathering information. And a lot of times, this is information that you you acquire through electronic means. And when I say electronic means, it might be electronic tracking devices, GPS-type tracking devices. Um, a lot of times, we were putting trackers on vehicles that we were trying to surveil for who they were associated with and who that next potential target or subject could be. Uh, so trackers were very important. Uh, cameras, covert cameras. A lot of times we use covert cameras to uh, on businesses uh, in public places. And, and, you know, for these, a lot of these techniques do require court orders or there might be a U.S. Attorney's Office policy that they want uh, court orders for these techniques. So we always sought those. And that's something that's important, too. It's not like we're just going out placing trackers and cameras in certain places. These were always done with the proper legal authorities' approval and consent. And when I say consensual monitoring, that means we're putting recording devices or cameras on undercover agents. And what that means is you have one party consent to the recording. That, that does make it legal in that regard. So therefore, when we send an undercover agent in to talk to a bad guy, uh, they can record that conversation via video and audio. And that information is used as significant evidence in most prosecutions. And a lot of times during these uh, prosecutions of the criminal activity or the subject, uh, once they see themselves on video or hear themselves on audio, basically admitting to the crime, most of the times those are pretty uh, easily resolved and pleas usually are the outcome. I was also fortunate enough to be a use of force instructor, which basically we help train agents in firearms and self-defense. How many years did you spend as the IRS special agent? I was a special agent from 1991 until I retired December of 2017. Basically, I was 27 years, 26 and a half years. Almost 27 years. All right, good. Uh, During that period of time, tell me about a fraud investigation that you're most proud of or that made a difference in your career. Well, I was very fortunate to have a uh, diverse inventory, so uh, I I was exposed to many cases that have uh, great memories and a lot of great people I worked with. Some of them that stick out, I was fortunate enough to work uh, the Blackwater security investigation and meet. That's where I dealt with 
all the uh, alphabet agencies. And that was a great exposure to how other agencies work and conduct their invest- investigations and, and their intel. Uh, but one that probably sticks out the most to me was a investigation that began probably in the late 90s and was prosecuted, I believe, in 2003. And this particular one involved an individual, and we'll call him Abdul Hafiz Muhammad. That was his name. His real name, you'll love this, was Andrew Griffin, if you're you're a Mayberry fan. (laughs) Uh, He was from Ghana. Yeah, He was from Ghana. He came over here, uh, started a business. And the business he was in was basically to promote what what he was promoting, I would say, was off-balance cheat financing. It's a very interesting uh, concept that I'd never heard of. And what he was trying to do is he claimed to have this trust. It was called the Granville Gold Trust, a Swiss trust, which at that time was, it was very difficult to get any type of cooperation with the Swiss authorities involving financial transactions. So it was a great, I'm going to call it a con because that's what it was. You couldn't prove necessarily that it did not exist. So what he would do is he would promote this Granville Gold Trust to individuals seeking loans for major projects. And one of his victims was a uh, gentleman in Missouri. And he basically what he was trying to do is build a Disney World in Missouri or something close to that. I forgot the name of the theme park he was trying to get financing for. He paid uh, Abdul Hafiz Muhammad a, a, a fee to have these balance sheet assets, which is kind of an oxymoron himself, but uh, he paid him to have this uh, opportunity to say he was a shareholder of this Granville Gold Trust or a trustee in this trust. And you could take the these certificates that he gave you, you could take them to the bank and they would provide financing for you because you have an asset to uh, back up that loan. Well, the banks, of course, were all up in arms as to what was going on and they were confused. And so therefore, uh, he would just continue to take his client's money to try to help them convince the bank what was what this was all about and how it you know, basically effectively worked. It was an interesting investigation at the time. He was able to shut down the Swiss National Bank trading with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He convinced a judge in New York City that this trust existed, convinced the judge that they need to freeze the assets because he couldn't access them. That's when the Federal Reserve Bank uh, really said, okay, we got to stop this guy. We had a, we say an IRS and FBI, we had an investigation ongoing in Raleigh at the time. So the next thing we know, we're getting a call from the Federal Reserve Bank says, hey, we want to talk about this guy. So I'm on a plane uh, within a week going up to the uh, Federal Reserve Bank, meeting with the uh, general counsel of the Federal Reserve. And he said, hey, I want to get the Swiss bank authorities over here. I'd like for you guys to talk to them about this guy. A couple of weeks later, uh, we're back in New York. We've got uh, the Swiss bank authorities were there. There's three or four of them. We had the 
Federal Reserve Bank uh, Council and members of the system there, and us. And they said, "We, this guy is a fraud, and he needs to be stopped. So that really kind of spearheaded the investigation. And ultimately, it ended up in about a week-long trial, and he was found guilty of wire fraud, money laundering, and ultimately uh, sentenced to uh, 10 years in federal prison. But just the it's an old kind that went back many years. It started, I believe it was out of uh, Washington state. It was an old kind that started in the fifties into the sixties. And so we had to track down some of the original, I'm going to call them con men involved in this. And they actually, um, we found them, uh, we interviewed them, we asked them to testify and they testified. And it was, it was like something out of a B movie. It was, it was incredible to see, uh, just to hear them. And when I say con men, these are con men, like one of them claimed he couldn't hear. So during his testimony, he was screaming everything. And uh, <laughs> it was, it was unbelievable. It was, it should have, I wish we could have had, you know, had that one filmed. It would have been very good entertainment, especially in today's reality shows. This one would have probably been a hit. That's probably one that sticks out because of the cast of characters. I mean, he was able to convince CPAs that this, really existed. So the CPAs were scratching their head because they they basically couldn't say, well, no, it, it can or it doesn't. We can't do this. He was that good of a of a salesman to convince people that uh, it was not just the Granville Gold Trust legitimate, but these were legitimate accounting practices. And we, it was phenomenal what he was able to do and convince people to do. And Gold Trust itself he was claiming to be, I can't remember how many trillions of dollars it was. So we ended up going to Fuqua School of Business and got an economics professor there, expert in world economy. And he said, look, what this guy is alleging is more than the gross domestic product of the United States, plus the gross domestic product of more than half the world. So it can exist. Like I said, that's one that really sticks out because it was so outrageous, but so many people bought into it. And the fortunate thing is all the disruption in lives, uh, not just the victims, but the government that uh, had to deal with this individual. So that was probably one of my favorites and most memorable investigations. So later on, you transitioned into the private sector. How did you get into the forensic accounting or private investigation world after retirement? I was fortunate enough to uh, have conducted investigations involving contraband cigarette trafficking. Uh, North Carolina is one of the low excise tax states in the United States for tobacco products. So cigarettes here in North Carolina, we will have a carton of cigarettes that'll sell for 50 bucks. In New York, which is one of the highest excise tax states for tobacco products, up there, that same carton is going to sell for about $120. So that was something that a lot of these, I'm going to just call them criminal enterprises, would abuse and smuggle cigarettes from North Carolina to New York, and you can't do that. There's a Contraband Cigarette Trafficking Act. Those profits that they were utilizing, a lot of those profits didn't remain in the United States. A lot of those profits were 
uh, transferred over to other countries. And a lot of these countries at that time were not very friendly to Americans. That's why cigarette smuggling was, is and still is a big thing and was at that time a, a concern of the government agencies. So because of my experience with that, Altria, which is the parent company for Philip Morris, they actually wanted an investigative group. They knew uh, I was getting ready to retire, and they knew a couple of the other agents uh, in North Carolina and said, hey, would you guys be interested in forming an investigative firm? And we needed to be licensed because we were actually investigating uh, potential crimes, and we wanted to be able to provide that information to proper agencies. So they said, if you're interested, uh, we'd like to offer you a contract. And we were interested, so the timing of it was uh, perfect uh, in that we were retiring, and this opportunity was out there. So I retired, and we started the firm uh, Eagle Intel Services. And our primary client at that time was Altria. In this situation, the state of North Carolina is a private investigator license necessary to do forensic accounting, or is it something that's just different? Well, for forensic accounting, I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, you don't have to have a private investigative license for that. Uh, if if you There's certain factors and criteria that the North Carolina does require for you to practice as an investigator. Like I just mentioned, uh, one of the things about crimes against the states or U.S., that's something you have to have a PI license for to investigate securing evidence uh, that's going to be used like in a, a, a court or any type of investigative group or committee that you're you know, basically gathering the information that will be used to prosecute or will be used in some type of civil suit or complaint. That's another reason that North Carolina might require a PI license. But as a forensic accounting, you, can, you do not have to have a PI license. Most of the time, the work as a forensic accountant would be through an attorney. Therefore, you would kind of work under his purview and the information that he's able to or she is able to gather. And then you would analyze that information and obviously offer an opinion on it. What skills do you think are important as an investigator, in your opinion? Basically, you need, obviously, a working knowledge of accounting uh, when we're talking forensic accounting, I think the best skill is someone that's going to be inquisitive in the fact that you're not just going to go to that first or second step, but you're going to look beyond that. It's kind of a perseverance, I would say, is important. You just can't always take an answer up front or face value. You need to look behind these answers and determine whether it's factually correct or not. And I think that that that's an important skill just to think outside the box, but yet keep it focused in an effort to what are you trying to prove? What information are you trying to say is correct or incorrect or factually wrong or did that person lie? Uh, so I think uh, that that's a skill set that's important and that kind of comes with common sense. There's certainly there's book knowledge that you need, but I would say it's just a common sense worldly approach is probably one of the 
things I see most investigators that are successful have. What advice would you give to someone who is interested in forensic accounting or fraud examinations? What kind of degree do you think they should get or maybe courses they should take to get them a leg up? A lot of recent college students asked me that almost that same question. And they, you know, they have an interest in investigations or federal, state, local law enforcement. And I tell them, I said, look, if you, you need a background, I think, in business. Because most of the investigations, you're going to have, yes, you're going to have your domestic investigation, cheating husbands and wives and so forth. But a lot of it has to do with fraud, embezzlement, insurance, false claims, uh, and things like that. So you need to have an understanding of business. And I think the more courses you have and knowledge base you have into how a business works, how a business runs, who are the responsible parties in the business? You know, what's the purpose of the bookkeeper? What's the purpose of a um, the finance manager? Things like that, I think, are important. So the more knowledge base you can have regarding how a business is run, I think, I think the better. Are there any resources or training that's helped you in your journey? Best thing that uh, helped me is other agents. And I say that in that, on-the-job training, that's where you get the most benefit. Certainly, attending the federal law enforcement training uh, in Glencoe, Georgia, was great. It gives you the basis. Uh, it gives you operating procedures for certain things. But at the same time, you have to get out there and you, you have to experience it. You have to. There's a lot of nuances of interviewing techniques, uh, and there's there are courses in interviewing techniques that I would highly recommend and that you seek because that's where you get most of your information is uh, talking to people and knowing whether that person is uh, steering you in the right direction or not. Mentorship is certainly uh, something that benefited me. But just those agents that were able to help me along, steer me in the right direction. A lot of times the uh, young investigators or less, less experienced investigators you want to explore everything. You, you want to, as they say, chase down the rabbit hole. Well, you got to be able to sometimes focus and see what's important in the investigation. And it might be the certain elements of the crime that you're trying to prove. Stick with those elements. What, what will make your case? And that's something that early on, a lot of the senior agents that I worked with certainly helped me realize that. And, you know, don't waste your time doing this. Focus on that. Mentorship is one of the best things that probably helped me in my career and those people that are willing to take the time to help you move forward and hopefully helping others grow as an investigator. Looking back on your career as a special agent, what was the biggest mistake or lost opportunity that you have? Fortunately, I don't have a lot of memories of that. I try to put those out of my mind. But I, I do think of uh, one case, and this is kind of a funny incident. Uh, we were conducting a search warrant on a house, and this was back in the uh, in the 90s. Fortunately, I was not the primary investigative agent. I was just acting as the search team leader at the time. Well, we knock on the door. We have a warrant for this particular address. People come to the door. We go into the door. They say, what are you here for? We tell them, and they say, no. 
that's next door. They're, they're doing that next door. We know they're doing that next door. We're just like, well, we have a warrant for this house. So um, one of the uh, senior agents at the time said, okay, well, we'll be very brief. Uh, what, what are these uh, uh, shreddings over here? And he said, well, we just, you know, we just shredded some documents. Can we have them? <laughs> we took them, and that was our inventory for the house. And so we walk out of the house with one bag of uh, shredded material. We call up primary investigating uh, agent of the case and say, hey, that was the wrong house. They gave us information that this is the house. Well, that person uh, then got on the phone, I believe, with a district judge or magistrate, and we were able to get another warrant for the legitimate real house. And fortunately, wait, 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 wait. So house. the affiant for the affidavit for probable cause to get into the house was not even on the scene? Uh, that's correct. We were doing multiple <laughs> warrants at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. There's, there's an excuse then, at least a slightly excuse, but oh my goodness. How in the world do you get the wrong house? Yeah, well, it was. I think it was more of a typo than anything else. It, it was kind of one of those things like a 219 as opposed to 217. And even though they had the description, these were... These were framed houses, like white framed houses in this uh, small community, small town community, and they all did kind of look alike. I can see in one regard how that mistake could happen, but it shouldn't have happened. And fortunately, it worked out for us uh, that it was a pretty significant mistake, but we were able to uh, follow through and get the evidence needed. You ready for the final four questions? Sure. All right. Final four. What is your biggest motivation now? With our firm is to provide the client with you know a quality service, a quality product. And we, we want to be fully engaged in what their needs are and understand those needs and understand the direction that we need to go as a result of what they're asking us to do. That's probably what motivates me the most is uh, just put a quality product out there. Uh, and then there's, when I say quality product, we want to make sure we're we're giving them accurate information that is succinct and to the point and not a lot of extraneous information. Just give them what they need for their purpose at that time. I'm assuming with your business, you're not doing the cheating spouse. You're doing bigger things. There's a lot more at stake, per se, than just proving that someone's cheating on somebody else. That's true. Uh, we we don't do a lot of the domestic cases we have. Probably one of our more significant investigations, we were hired by the North Carolina General Assembly in uh, 2019 to conduct an investigation that involved the governor's office and his involvement with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline potentially being built. That was a, a client we certainly wanted to gather information for in a, you know, a very accurate and expedient manner and not waste the taxpayers' money. So again, it was trying to give them a, a quality work product that didn't go down a lot of other rabbit holes. And I think we succeeded in that. It ended up being a pretty comprehensive report, in which you can read that report online public uh, record and but that again because of our training and 
skill set we're able to put together report. And going back to one of your earlier questions about skill set, that's something I think you do need to have a skill set in concise writing uh, and because you are providing this information most of the time in a report type format and it needs to be accepted by the client what they're looking for uh, and explains the issues and explains the information that you've gathered. Uh, and, and in the case with the North Carolina General Assembly, they, they seem to be pleased with it. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? Well, the, the, the Bible is the book that obviously has changed my life and thinking. Uh, through God, that's changed my life and thinking. I, I, certainly in this day and time, the Bible offers of, uh, offers a lot of information on, and expectations of how we should live as a person, how we should live as a state, as a nation, as a world, how we get along with each other, how we deal with people. That's probably the most influential book that I've ever read and continue to read. Do you have a favorite book out of those 66 or so books? Hmm. Probably. I, I like the writings of John. I mean, I, I do. I gets into first uh, John talking about love and how we basically God loves us and the love we should share with others. And I think that, <laughs> I don't want to sound like, you know, the world needs more love, but yeah, that's kind of where we are. The good thing is first John is a, is a very short book too. It's not, that's not that, it's not very that's long. That's true. Yeah. It's not like Psalms. It's not. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months. That's less than a hundred dollars. If it's good enough for Kevin Green, it's good enough for the world that you enjoyed or made your job easier. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna give you two answers for this. I'm gonna give you on the job answer. On the job answer is yes, we do use uh, electronic tracking devices, and those, uh, believe it or not, uh, you can purchase for less than a hundred dollars. Most of them are subscription services that uh, that record the history of where that tracker goes. You might pay a little more than that, but the actual devices are much less than that, which is kind of amazing when I was used to working for the federal government, they always say the federal government pays way too much. Well, the trackers we used were in the neighborhood of sometimes two to $3,000. And now you can get something that works just as well for less than $100. And I will say if on surveillance, that certainly does make life easier in a work perspective. Is there a particular brand out there? Spy Tech makes a very good tracker that we've utilized. And that, that's a pretty good one. I believe they're out in New York City. Is that something you can get off of Amazon? Uh, you can you can get those off Amazon, I believe, yes. On a personal note, smart plugs. And I hear you've got a tech agent talking about this stuff, but uh, I never had a smart house until this year or within the past 12 months. I, I love my smart plugs and ability to turn lights on and off and other things on and off via your phone or computer. So uh, smart plugs, highly recommend them. If you had to do something else, what would you be doing? If you got fired today from being the managing partner of your your firm? Well, I'm going to rule out uh, being a professional golfer. I don't have the skill set for that. I'm going to rule out uh, being a professional tennis player. Sorry, I don't have the skill set for that. 
Uh, I ride motorcycles, uh, race motorcycles. Unfortunately, can't make money at that. So I'm probably going to have to say I do more volunteer work and probably need to be doing it regardless of serving organizations that uh, you know, serve other people in need. So that's probably what I would be doing more of. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I do really do appreciate it. Thank you for your service for uh, your country and what you've done investigating crimes. Good luck to you and your career as a private investigator. Well, I certainly appreciate it, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And if anybody's interested in uh, any other information I can possibly glean, feel free to contact me. Thank you. 